Thanks for joining us. I'm Alan Burke, a landscape architect here in the Puget Sound region, and you are listening to the Green Meridian Podcast. How do you come about really learning how to ply your trade? What techniques work best? How best to plant? And what amendments to recommend? What kind of garden folklore do you swear by? You'll likely agree with me that it's hard to find any two designers or horticulturalists to agree on any particular method in answer to questions we get from our clients. Our work by its very nature is so difficult to manage. I can't think of any other discipline that is so grounded in misinformation. Okay, politics is like that, sure. Relying on falsehoods to manipulate votes is one thing, but we're trying to understand natural processes, not whether Ted Cruz's dad killed JFK. In our world, we're focusing on nature and how plants respond and what least adverse practices yield the best results and how homes and habitat are affected by our works. To do this effectively, and importantly, to be able to clearly educate the public, our potential clients, and maybe while you're at it, maybe steer your brother-in-law off the maga ledge at the Thanksgiving table, we need to be relying on science rather than folklore, wishful thinking, and loose opinion. It's fine and well to talk about using chewing gum to control moles, or to be planting by the phases of the moon, but honestly, it's not really a scientifically proven method then why are we talking about it to clients when it's something that we don't necessarily believe? This holds true for so much of what you hear about in discussing products to purchase and apply, in relationships we want to understand within nature, and so many of the issues around gardening and landscaping. I think that we can all agree that our decision should be rooted in science. As we reach for nuggets of truth in horticulture, we're bombarded with carefully crafted and officially sanctioned product pitches that have us casting chemicals at the slightest signs, while being lambasted with the Gaia sensibilities of garden pundits that stop just short of magical thinking and crystal gazing. Those of you that took the time to listen to our episode, Magic in Your Work, know that I recognize the spiritual aspects of what we do. I strive to learn more about the magic and the mystery, and acknowledge that the universe has mysteries of flora and fauna that we have yet to unfold. At the same time, having a healthy skepticism and pragmatic orientation toward horticulture is, I think, always advisable. At the same time, there's so much that we simply don't really know, and there are aspects of our work that lend themselves to an understanding that is more nuanced and built on a slowly evolving and recurring understanding that's gained by trial and error. I think we've learned that lesson to some extent over the decades in looking at the discipline, the medicine, and how some remedies that center around wellness, or for example, acupuncture, can gain a very real credibility over time and experience. 
In our own world of gardening and landscaping, we are really injected into a grab bag of misinformation. This could be anything from watching old Jerry Baker videos where he's taking household cleaners and Coca-Cola and making them into garden products, to the core beliefs of folks that believe in biodynamic agriculture in which inoculants and tinctures are made from ground-up animal parts and applied based upon astrological alignments. At this critical juncture in our work, in which we need to have a heightened awareness around the oncoming onslaught of climate change and how it's going to affect our environments, we need to get serious about what we're talking about. What's a concerned green industry professional to do? In working through all the information and data, I think it's important to root your understanding and belief in science. Personally, I think the best information can be found through the resources that you can find through your local agricultural extension service. For us in the Puget Sound, this is principally through Washington State University and its well-respected agricultural extension. The core area of this understanding for us locally can be found in the work of Linda Chalker-Scott, let's call her LCS for brevity, and her controversial horticultural myth reports that have been coming out now for many years. Today I want to paraphrase a few of these reports to counterpoint some closely held beliefs in horticulture and open this up for discussion. You may not agree with everything that I'm about to say, but I do want you to open your mind to the possibility that we may be providing crews, clients, and creative teams the wrong guidance, and what we are being fed may be a steady stream of misinformation from a number of angles. When I think about anecdotal evidence in the green industry, my mind goes first to the most basic of gardening questions, how to control moles as garden pests. Years ago, I worked with an eccentric and outspoken old fellow, to put it kindly, that advocated to put chewing gum in mole tunnels to deter the pesky critters. Now, I know that we have involved our thinking to understand not only the benefits of moles and voles toward soil aeration and health, but we also know from ag extension research that trapping is really the only real measure of control. His gum recommendation was either made up or gathered loosely from the old farmer's almanac, neither source being in any way reliable. We need to make a conscious and concerted effort to move away from this kind of anecdotal information and embrace analytical insights. For this episode, I want to compartmentalize these myth-busting topics to four areas. Folklore gardening, soil preparation and compost, weed control and mulches, and plant installation and care. Folklore gardening in general can be seen as a compilation of information that evolves from gardening experiences that are infused with aspects of astrology, anthropomorphism of plant materials, and religious thinking. LCS myth-busting outline talks about the folklore aspects of whipping trees, quote, to induce them to fruit better, this being done ritually on Good Friday, unquote. It's not a stretch to think that you could hear that kind of BS spewing forth from a spiritually centered garden advisor or other uninformed garden wacko. One of the most basic aspects of folklore gardening is the practice of biodynamic agriculture, rooted in the teachings of the German teacher and founder of the Waldorf schools, Rudolf Steiner. His agricultural system of biodynamics centered around the formulation and application of compounds, for example, prepared packed cow manure, preparation 500, or sand, preparation 501, into cow horns, and then burying these for months before applying. The cow horns are considered special, quote, antennae, unquote, that absorb, quote, cosmic forces, unquote. 
Other preparations are mixed into the skulls and organs of animals. These processes, still practiced today, were not developed based upon any scientific study, but only through Steiner's spiritual clairvoyance, which included his belief that a secret civilization lived on the dark side of the moon. Other aspects of biodynamic belief muddy the confusion by incorporating now mainstream organic and natural process practices such as no-till planting and composting, innovative at the time and now understood to be effective methods today. But biodynamics gets lost in its own mix of agriculture and astrology, not a good foundation for any kind of carefully considered green industry thinking. Full disclosure, my three kids all went to Waldorf schools, and I recommend it highly, especially for young children. But I think that it demeans spiritual belief, actually, to think that biodynamic practices have any real place in our very real and magically unknowable universe, and the complex answers that only science can help us more fully understand. Soil preparation and compost applications are perhaps the most discussed facets of landscaping and gardening work that folks will discuss at the drop of a hat. Let's just drop the mic here by saying that this about it. You're probably over-amending your landscape installations. Here, then, is the first and perhaps foremost heresy from LCS. Quote, No scientific studies to date show any measurable benefit of soil amendment except in containerized plant production. Plants grown in native soil consistently show better root establishment and more vigorous growth. Only one study reported no negative effects of amending soil with organic matter, but there were no benefits either. When you consider the cost of materials and labor needed to incorporate soil amendments, it's difficult to justify the practice. This outdated practice is still required in the specifications of architects, landscapers, and other groups associated with landscape installation. It is still recommended by garden centers and gardening articles, and there's a multi-million dollar soil amendment industry that has little interest in debunking this myth. As responsible green industry professionals, we need to recognize and avoid non-sustainable management practices, unquote. That's a mouthful and something to think about. And frankly, that's a hard turnaround for most of us. The fact is, studies show that we simply do not have to be amending beds as much as we do, so long as we are planting appropriately for our location and microclimate. The Washington State Agricultural Extension Guidelines suggest that you, quote, do not incorporate organic amendments into landscapes destined for permanent installations top dress with mulch instead, unquote, and that, quote, abnormally high levels of nutrients can have negative effects on plants and soil health, unquote, and, quote, any nutrients not immediately utilized by microbes or plants contribute to non-point source pollution, unquote. In applications of compost to bed areas, however, WSU notes that researchers have found it effective in suppressing soil diseases such as anthracnose, fusarium wilt, and club root, damping off disease, southern blight, and verticillium. Similarly, the almost mythically positive results attributed to compost teas are really not validated yet by studies. This is not to say that compost tea is not worth considering for use in gardens, only that research doesn't yet substantiate all that some garden folks are saying. I'm noting links to the research on the podcast page if you want to read more on the analysis. Similarly, introducing mycorrhiza may not be as helpful as some organic proponents would have you believe. The research tells us that, quote, healthy soils naturally contain indigenous mycorrhiza. Adding packaged mycorrhiza to such soils is a waste of money and resources, unquote.
Weed control and mulching can be redefined in our minds when we base our thinking in the actual scientific analysis. Weed control using corn gluten in particular is clearly overstated. The findings telling us that corn gluten, or CGM, quote, has no effect on established weeds, is not selective, and can inhibit germination of desirable plant seeds as well as weeds, unquote. And, quote, though it may be effective in the Midwest U.S., CGM is not as effective in other climate zones, such as those in the Western U.S., there are no scientific data from field trials in the Western U.S. to support the use of CGM in weed control, unquote. And other environmentally friendly weed control treatments, such as sub-irrigation, mulch, and soil solarization, are cheaper and often more effective than corn gluten. Mulches and bark can create some controversy as well. Garden professionals often overstating the weed control or water retention properties of these kinds of bed finishes. The research tells us that, quote, bark naturally contains waxes that prevent absorption and release of water in landscapes, unquote. St studies have also shown that bark generally offers little real diminishment of weed growth, at best only slowing some aspect of weed seed growth that disperses along the top layer, not from the bed area below the bark application. Similarly, paper or cardboard bed coverings can pose their own problems, the analysis stating that, quote, newspaper and cardboard sheet mulches can become pest havens, termites were found to prefer cardboard over wood chips as a food source, and rodents such as voles often nest underneath mulch sheets, unquote. Further, quote, newspaper and cardboard sheet mulches were not often as effective as other organic mulches, e.g. wood chips or bark, in preventing weed growth or improving yield, unquote, and can induce anaerobic conditions if used on wet, poorly drained soils. When wet, the layers of paper are compacted, creating an imperme impermeable barrier to water and gas exchange. Newspaper and cardboard sheet mulches become hydrophobic if allowed to dry out, causing rainfall or irrigation water to sheet away rather than to percolate through. On another note, it has become commonly understood that landscape fabric is a no-no in bed areas. Over time, weeds grow easily on the shallow surface above the fabric. Water penetration is diminished, planted ground cover can struggle to spread effectively, and the fabric can become unsightly and exposed over time. Similarly, the use of rubber mulches is not recommended because of inherent toxicity, as well as all the negative attributes of bark applications overall. Plant installation and landscape care abounds with all kinds of anecdotal advice and ill-informed installation methodology. Let's start with the overblown beliefs around allelopathic plantings and what are called, quote, companion plantings, unquote. One seminal view of this is the Native American planting known as the Three Sisters. It is described in the research as corn, beans, and squash together with an intercropping system. Beans are nitrogen fixers and continually supply this macronutrient to the soil. Corn stalks provide structure for beans to climb, and squash vines provide a living mulch with their broad leaves that shade the soil, reducing evaporation and inhibiting weed seed germination. These three species have similar environmental requirements and don't outcompete each other for water and nutrients, thus allowing all three species to survive, unquote. 
While terms like intercropping and polyculture can be a better description of successful comparable planting, companion planting tends to anthropomorphize this aspect of gardening more so than the more accurate, accurate term, which is plant associations. These very real but overstated and exaggeratedly simplified plant lists can provide benefits in maintaining plant diversity to attract and retain beneficial insects, and can provide visual and olfactory miscues that throw off predatory insect species. The research notes that one study, quote, reported that aromatics like mentha had little or no disruptive effect on insect behavior, indicating that this characteristic alone may not be very useful, unquote. Further, Quote, increasing research on below-ground plant relationships has revealed that many plants share root system connections and can transfer nutrients such as nitrogen between plant species, facilitating the growth of the receiver plant. Some plants from arid climates accumulate salts and can be used as desalinating partners for salt-sensitive species. Others, adapted to high mineral soils, can accumulate and sequester heavy metals from soils, decreasing their toxic effects in other species. Nitrogen-fixing species, such as those in the legume family, provide this nutrient to other plants and microbes in their immediate vicinity. Nurse plants provide shade and moderate the microclimate, unquote. The research tells us in the end that, quote, pseudoscientific, mythological, and occult applications of, quote, companion, companion plantings, unquote, are not scientific and will damage your credibility as a professional. Traditional companion plant charts have entertainment, and not scientific value, unquote. Vitamin B1, or thiamine, is an additive that has no real value. I won't go into it in any detail, but it doesn't work. Better to just add a nitrogen fertilizer, but importantly, one with no phosphates. Another very commonly held belief is that container plantings benefit from a layer of drain rock at the bottom of a pot below the soil layer. This myth has been repeatedly debunked, and it has been proven that water can actually be impeded from draining properly due to the addition of gravel. Knowing this, you can save time on your next container planting installation by simply and only adding soil to the pot. On another note, we often see vertical root feeders or water tubes sold on the market. These simply don't really work either. Quote, no scientific evidence suggests that passive aeration pipes will improve soil oxygen levels in field situations. Tree installation costs are unnecessarily increased by specifying installation of aeration tubes, unquote. Another popularly held misconception is that root balls of containerized materials should not be disturbed during planting. In fact, the opposite is true. Quote, it's important to realize that roots respond to pruning in much the same way as the crown. Pruning induces new growth. Roots that are pruned at transplant time, especially those that are excessively long or misshapen, will respond by generating new flexible roots that help them establish in the landscape, unquote. This will have some landscape professionals getting all worked up. Bald and burlap material, keep the wrap or remove it. Studies tell us clearly to remove the burlap and, importantly, to carefully study, clean, and arrange the root ball. The research indicates to discard the wire, rope, and burlap, pruning the roots as needed, and removing any clay from the root mass. Place the plant in a hole only as deep as the root ball with a slight crown in the center. Backfill with native soil and no amendment. 
don't use any transplant fertilizer, and finally, if staking for no more than a year after installation. Tree staking is a controversial issue because we are so frequently asked to do it. Most professional landscape design installation specifications clearly require it. This is most often not needed. The problems are many. Staking encourages vertical but not horizontal growth, and stakes are often installed incorrectly and are rarely adjusted to be removed. The research on staking indicates that Quote, most containerized and correctly dug B&B materials do not need staking. Bare root trees often do. If trees must be staked, place stakes as low as possible, but no higher than two-thirds the height of the tree. Materials used to tie the tree to the stake should be flexible and allow for movement all the way down to the ground so that trunk taper develops correctly. Removing all the staking material after roots have established, and this can be as early as a few months, but should be no longer than one growing season. Materials used for permanent tree protection should never be attached to the tree." Unquote. One of the best opportunities for myth-busting in our industry is in making improved strides in landscape care. Probably the most important opportunity for correction is to stop using phosphate fertilizers. This chemical really has no plant value based upon research and drifts into the water system, inducing algae blooms and starving oxygen in the water, adversely affecting fish and overall habitat. If you feel the need to fertilize for transplanting, it is much better to use an ammonium nitrate fertilizer instead. The addition of phosphate-based fertilizers in soils decreases mycorrhizal activity and negatively impacts overall soil health. Bone meal is another overused additive that does little to improve plant health. Scientific studies from WSU indicate that, quote, bone meal supplies high levels of phosphorus and calcium, elements that are rarely limiting in non-agricultural soils. Phosphorus from bone meal or other sources does not stimulate plant growth. It is only a mineral, not a plant growth regulator. High levels of phosphorus from bone meal or other sources will inhibit growth of mycorrhizal fungi. Tree wound dressing is another kind of snake oil. It isn't needed, and it can only harm the plant you're trying to protect. Quote, covering wounds with traditional sealants inhibits oxidative processes, which in turn will reduce callus formation. Optimal pruning time for insect and disease-prone species is in the fall or winter, when temperatures and infection rates are lower. If you must prune a disease-prone species when insects or fungi are active, that is during the warmer times of the year, a light coating of an insecticide or fungicide may be warranted." Unquote. Antitranspirants are often applied to plant materials, mainly in commercial applications, and this can have long-term damaging effects on plants. It is thought that antitranspirants will minimize the need for watering, and in fact, that's how the stuff is sold. A more careful understanding of the flora tells us that this kind of application is a bad idea because this kind of chemical affects, quote, the tiny pores on leaf surfaces. These pores have two functions. They create a gradient for water movement throughout the plant, and they allow gas exchange between the plant and the atmosphere. Each of these physiological functions is vital to a plant's survival. The transpiration stream not only transports water through the plant, but root-produced growth regulators and soil minerals as well. Furthermore, water transpiration from the leaf surface aids in evaporative cooling of the leaves. 
interfering with this normal and necessary process is harmful to the plant. The increase in internal leaf temperature has been documented to kill some plants. The second vital function is gas exchange. In the daytime, carbon dioxide enters the leaf and oxygen exits. In the evening, the reverse occurs. This is erroneously referred to as breathing, but the mental image of the effect on the plant is useful. Without carbon dioxide uptake, photosynthetic rate is depressed. Regardless of what advertisers claim, it is impossible to prevent water vapor movement through the stomates without impairing gas exchange, unquote. Let's face it, we're inundated daily with misguided anecdotes disguised as earth knowledge. Our own industry is a circus of opinion, much of it based upon trusted beliefs handed down by wizened old deppers that seem to know what they're doing, or hawked by multinational agri-suppliers that want to sell products to an unsuspecting public, or academic institutions funded by chemical concerns. And landscape architects, of course, leaning on the cut-and-copy spec button, are all contributing to this feast of misinformation. We'll talk about it in another episode, but I think it's well past time to recognize that our own industry has been hijacked by chemical interests that want nothing more than to sell product. They ensure that the uncapped displays at your big box store are stacked to the ceiling in spring with stuff to spray, spread, and spew. Years ago, the USGS found here in the Puget Sound, chemical content and waterways spiked in spring and fall. This coincides with the big push twice annually from retailers to apply garden chemicals and for commercial installers to do the same. Arguably, sometimes it may be needed, albeit less so now, as we change our understanding of what constitutes health and beauty in the landscape. But we have it in our wheelhouse to easily seek out the truth, and we should do all we can to become true stewards of the land. Our industry, it appears, won't help us, as the editorials and content of what we call our green industry trade magazines are locked up by those that advertise the most while rank-and-file green industry professionals are instead seeking a clearer form of truth, one that is based upon a new reality that is founded on and in care of the environment where we are raising our children. Thanks again for listening.